Uh, did you notice one of the mysteries of the great? You are talking about Kathleen. Yeah, last night. Uh -huh. One of the things to interpret there, it's so nicely ambiguous, is that did you notice that the same music is used at two opposite occasions? First, in the famous scene, Hinkley Hitler playing with the balloon, and at the end, when the Jewish barber taking over the place of Hinkel. Uh, 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 gives that shitty sentimental speech. It's Wagner uh, Lohengrin overture. Now what does this mean? You can read it, my friend Michel Chion, the French guy tries to read it in an optimist, positive way. That it means nothing is unredeemable. Like even something that appears to be appropriated by the bad guys can be turned blah blah blah. But my idea is far more pessimist one. It's that uh, if you look closely at the speech that Hinkle, sorry, the barber delivers at the end, it may appear to be a speech of love, blah, blah. But what if he's basically saying probably what Hinkle himself would have been saying? I mean, you know that there is always, through fascism, they always mix uh, brutality with excessive sentimentality, how should I put it, no? That it's rather a much more darker insight that maybe the two are not so radically opposed. The good guy and the bad guy and so on, no? Like Hitler's Nuremberg speech. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the speeches are six Yeah. But, but this is where I am again a little bit on the side of the horrible Leni Riefenstahl because if you look at triumph of the will, of the will, uh, from her standpoint, that is to say, hearing her comment on it in a documentary, The Wonderful Life of Blah Blah. Wonderful, terrible life. life, yes. It's true that if you look at it, and I checked it up, I think that with the exception of maybe one short outburst of Julius Stryker, there is no military propaganda, Hitler appears there only, I will bring work, blah, 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 and no war, anti-Semitism, and so on. Because that's her defense, that I emphasize just this, Nazism means stability, order, people will be put to work, peace, and so on. That was her defense. And she didn't totally lie, because if you look closely at how she behaved during World War II, do you know that story uh, that at the beginning of the war she volunteered to be a war reporter? Then she was in Poland and she witnessed a scene when some German soldiers were shooting, I don't know, some Polish civilians or... And do you know that it's a unique document? There is somebody took photo of her at that moment. And you see her totally desperate. She went to the officer to protest, like, do German soldiers behave like this? And uh, she was basically told, fuck off, bitch, that's none of your business. And then she resigned. And she resigned. She went back to uh, Berlin and get back out of it. And then, basically, she went into some kind of internal immigration. Just to say, you know that she was doing that ridiculous melodrama, Tiefland. Uh, she was protracting it on and on for four or five years and so on, no? Sorry? Yeah, for four or five years, on and on, 
basically just to gain time to do nothing. So I'm not redeeming her in any way. I'm saying there are definitely guys who are darker than her. You know, it's always unjust. Did it's you ever talk to her? Sorry? Did you ever talk to her? No, but almost I, know, I did. I knew her. You knew her? Uh, I spent three weeks of my holidays with her once on the Maldives. When, like, oh, really? Yeah, and she was, she was like, what, 99? And she was shooting an underwater I know, that's madness. I know. Yeah. I know what is with these old Nazis, like her or Hans Georg Gadamer, he was giving talks and 101, 102. Yeah. I claim you should be like Simon Wiesenthal. You must be an old Nazi or an old Jew who survived Auschwitz. Only this type of guys can then function <laughs> till one. But how was she? Was she? She, she was, was probably a little bit of conceited, arrogant. But how was she? Like for, for instance, she never left house without complete makeup. So she was always perfectly styled. I mean, just what tells us like about it. her. She always was wearing a mask. No? She was there with her 60-year-old boyfriend. And um, she was like 40 six years zero. old. Yeah, 6 zero. And, um, and she was always perfectly styled. That was amazing. She went diving first thing and she goes home two hours, puts on everything. And she was putting these really eccentric colors, like blue and pink and in her eyelashes. Yeah, but wasn't that nonetheless unbelievably maybe an effect of the ridicule in this? Like, yeah, somehow. Yeah. But, but, but I think not for her. Not, uh -huh. not for her. For her and like her hair, she was wearing her hair like this all the time. And she was like commanding this boyfriend around, so he was like her slave. Oh, really? I yeah. like this. I, like <laughs> I would like to have a, a woman to command me like this. No problem. Yeah. But but you know what interests me? Uh, 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 and she was the queen of the island, of course. She of, was the? of the island, the queen of the island. She was very not arrogant, but very self-conscious and very aware mm -hmm. that she is like the. I mean, of course. I know that she was cheating, how she always said, like, Kristallnacht, oh, I was on the way to America, I yeah. didn't, uh, she never heard, you know, like... Uh, she, you know, in, in exactly. Wonderful, Terrible Life, yeah. she's very defensive yeah. at the questions yeah. about the Up period. She gets angry and she, okay. when she starts defending herself, and she, yeah, it's usually yeah. a sign of uh, My brother was working of, here, uh, and I was just hanging out. Compressed guilt. Uh -huh. but, but let me go a step further. You know, this is not my lowest Toronacci, how should I put it? You know, I've written about him in my Kislovsky book. You know whom I quite admire, but he is, and he cannot be redeemed. Uh, in, in, anyway, you know, White Harlan. He is the bad guy, the really bad guy. You know, he did uh, Jews. Then he did Kohlberg, uh, you know that? Uh, that's totally. You should see it now, you can get it legally in Germany. Kohlberg is. You know, you know that Goebbels got an idea after seeing Gone with the Wind that it looks crazy, that it's not a joke, that the only thing that can save Germany is to do a big mega hit like Gone with the Wind and then showing it to the soldiers, it will give them new alarm. Yeah. So in the summer of 44, they started to shoot the biggest spectacle is called Kolberg. Kolberg is a small city now in the north of Poland, which was the city which resisted to Napoleon to the end. And then in the last minute it survived. Not as Weidkarlan presented it because of their heroism, but because simply there was then a temporary truce. And Okay, but the point is that the idea was to present the heroism of this city as, and it was madness. In the fall of 44, you know, Germans, everything bombed, needing soldiers, everything. Goebbels got it that 
they withdrew some 40, 50,000 soldiers from the Eastern Front. They put them in, uh, they made uh, that, how do you call that, the military uh, factories producing the uniforms. They made them produce tens of the thousands of uniforms from Napoleonic times. They built big, uh, how do you call it, sets and so on to do this. It was total madness. And uh, it didn't, of course it didn't work, but how? The problem is that it was finished only in the early 45. So when half of the France was already liberated, and there was the city city, it's well known on the Atlantic coast, La Rochelle, where Nazis were still holding the city, but it was already surrounded by the Allies. So this is the famous extravaganza. A German plane dropped the reels into the city. The idea was that if the defenders there will see this city, this movie, they will... But it's, it's total, total madness, this film. You can get this movie? You can get in Germany. Kolbert. It's simply K-O-L Kolbert. You can get it in Germany. It's, uh, uh, I think even you can get it, you know, that interesting Chicago distributing uh, uh, house, uh, uh, facets. Don't you know? You see facets, like F, maybe I don't pronounce it correctly. F-A-S. E-T-S. Facets. It's, uh, they are the biggest for the distribution of all these third world artists and so on, but also all kinds of extravaganza and so on, old movies, silent movies, they, they are extraordinary. They have, yeah, yeah, no, no, you should, they, you even can go, they have a store, east, uh, sorry, west of center, those where the Chicago becomes this boring stretch city, whatever, not in the... Uh, uh, skyscraper domain. So you can, uh, but the problem is that it doesn't. Uh, uh, the problem is that. Well, it's it right Sorry. So it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you can do it online. But that's the sad thing that if you go there, you just get a catalog with names. You know, you yeah, don't. Get... About, no, no, no. I mean, I'm downloading the film. Ah, Colbert. Yeah. Ah, that's true. Maybe you can, you get many of the things on YouTube. That's true. Yes. But you know which is the absolute melodrama? I analyze it. In between his Nazi stuff, White Harlan did three melodramas, Golden Star, Golden City, Immense, and this, my favorite, Opfergang, Sacrifice, Sacrificial Gang, which are, I think, especially the last one, one of the most effective melodramas I've ever seen. It has the, the ultimate perfect story of sacrifice. It's, it's so incredibly well done as a melodrama. It all focuses, you see here what a woman's true love is. A guy who has a beautiful cold wife gets in love with a more lively girl and then they are, the girl gets, catches some strange illness and is maybe dying. And then the guy, they have an affair. The guy this is the original story. The guy also dies, but the wife knows that they had a ritual because the guy was not allowed to, to, to visit his mistress because of the illness, that every afternoon he, he rode on a horse past her house where she was very ill, the mistress, and waved at her. And so after the guy dies, the wife dresses up as her husband to save the, you know, sacrifices herself, to give to her the illusion that her lover is still alive, like the ultimate wife's sacrifice to 
personified to embody her own husband to save the mistress and so on. It's so it's so beautifully done. And then I analyze in detail the final shot and so on. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Uh, Opfergang. Or der Opfergang. Now, uh, usually it's just translated as sacrifice. This one, unfortunately, I don't know what's the situation now. And you know, my life is about Germany. I don't know how it was when uh, you were in Austria, but in Germany, you know, they get this nice, when I was there for two years, code name. When you asked for Nazi films, you didn't say Nazi films, you say, do you have some historical German films? Like, no. But this didn't mean all. It meant specifically, if you meant Weimar, you said Weimar. Do you know this really good documentation from Arte um, on how the, how the neo-Nazis in Europe distribute their, their videos? I mean, I don't I'll know. I hope I'm not part yeah, of that because I got from my friends. You're not. <laughs> no, but let me tell you something. All my are Germans really, even the left, the neo-Nazis, because all the Germans that I, uh, my German leftist friends, they say, you have this to analyze it, and then, my God, they all have all the Nazi stocks. In, I, mean, uh, I saw, you, you just, I saw, uh, did you see that their Ewige Jude? That terrifying documentary on the Jews, it's really disgusting. I mean, that one is disgusting. Like, I claim if you have a minimum of decency, even if you are anti-Semitic, that movie should make you anti-anti-Semitic, no? It's a kind of a scientific documentary about the Jews, and it has all the nastiest manipulations you can imagine. For example, of course, when it was shot in 1940, where 41, when Poland was already occupied and the Jews were condensed in, uh, how do you call it, in, 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 the, in the ghetto, no? And of course they were there poor and dirty. So the movie uses that shots to prove how the Jews live like rats, and then it's like our friend Badu, ratsman, you know? What I like is that, like, it's horrible, is that then you have some scientists who draws a parallel, you remember this nice scene, how rats infested Europe from the Middle East and draws an exact geographic parallel between the red invasion and the Jewish invasion and then it does some wonderful, I couldn't but laugh, it portrays all the evil Jews and so on, no? And they make fun of Einstein, no? Calling him Relativitätsjude, no? I like this term, the Relativity Jews, because uh, I like when Right-wingers get bitchy in this vulgar, funny way. Like, the best one, it's a nice, almost, if you want to understand what is the negation of negation, this Hegelian double movement. Uh, uh, when, you know, when Freud left Vienna, now there is a dark aspect to it. You know when Freud in 38, mm -hmm. you know who was the key intermediator? Marie Bonaparte. Go lower. Benito, 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 yeah, yeah, Mussolini. And then, you know, this is what Freudians don't like to emphasize. Mussolini wrote a letter directly, not to Hitler, to that size inquart. I don't know who was the Gauleiter of Austria. And then, as a sign of gratitude, Freud sent to Mussolini a copy of Unbehagen in der Kultur with the signature of one great mind, 
to another great mind who admired each other. <laughs> Things happen in history, as we should put it. No? And but, but what is so nice is that on his way to England, Freud stopped for a couple of days in Paris. And one of these right-wing popular magazines have a, has a wonderful anti-Semitic outburst. They say, uh, no, sorry, I'm confused now, totally, typically. It, this is not about Freud, but about Einstein. When Einstein left Berlin, he passed on his way to the United States through Paris. And one of these Paris city populist right-wing uh, 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 journals uh, had this passage, it's wonderful. They say, uh, we admit we don't understand relativity theory. We don't know what it's about. Some people claim, probably it's true, that even Einstein himself doesn't understand it. But we do understand one thing. There is now one Jew more in Paris than before you. <laughs> it's so vulgar, I mean. No, 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 I mean, it's, sorry? It gets old. Yeah, I know, I know, no, but, but I have to put it, uh, 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 it's, uh, it's interesting how this problem of how to take it, the sad thing, something unites, and here they were really bad guys, partisans of Einstein and uh, of Freud. The bad guy is here, how is he called? Uh, Ernst Jones. They made a very dirty pact. Do you know that even Freud was shocked? Jones was, for me, if you ask me, the bad guy of psychoanalytic movement. He was the ultimate anti-communist conformist. You know how you can detect this? Look at uh, his... Do uh, you know how he ended up? No, how? In Toronto, and he lost his license for abusing a patient. No wonder, no wonder. Because he played this English gentleman and so on. But look, if you look at his uh, big official biography of Freud, uh, look at, uh, for example, you learn that he had to report this, that Freud uh, bought the famous house on Berggasse from, uh, from uh, 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 how is it called, who was the great guy? Uh, 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 from uh, 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 Bauer, Bauer family, Otto Bauer. And then you have, of course, a footnote where he says, Bauer, a well-known uh, Austrian journalist, friend of Freud. Fuck it, Bauer was the leader of the Social Democratic Party. You know, he, ob I mean, it's ridiculous. It's the same as to say Trotsky or Lenin, a journalist. Of course they were, but they were not dead. <laughs> no. It's the same way to say Stalin was a Soviet writer of short comments or what, no? You know, you have a whole series of censorship like this, of downplaying the link. Because even, you know, to, to give you another link of the depth of the connection, you know Dora, the big case, Dora. You know what's Dora's name? Ida Bauer. No? So it was all... So this gives you another image that Freud was even personally involved with social democratic circles. That has to disappear. The second really dark thing is that uh, 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 Jones, when the Nazis took over, Ernst Jones negotiated with the Nazis, the good guy, under quotation marks. Good guy only in the sense that he wanted nonetheless to somehow incorporate psychoanalysis was you know the story, it's a wonderfully sad story. It was, I forgot the name, the brother of Hermann Goering. Another Goering who was a big German psychiatrist, and he negotiated, he made a deal, and 
Ernst Jones was een gebrood toe, Freud, een enthousiastic letter. Listen, I saved our movement from Germany. But the conditions were shameless, as they put it. First, of course, it was non-negotiable, all Jews are out. Second, they had to change, they had to replace, change all the terms. Like, it was no longer called psychoanalysis, it was called, and incidentally, even today, sometimes it's referred to dynamic approach. They invented this term, dynamic psychiatry, dynamic approach, and so on. The irony is that it then worked tremendously well, and Freud accepted it, but was totally shocked. Like, Freud was shocked morally, like, doesn't, doesn't Jones see what he is doing, Hofstra put it, no? That he's practically accepting, uh, no, Jones was also one of those dirty guys who, you know, that famous... Uh, Olympic Salamanch, the bad Spanish guy. You know when they negotiated the Berlin Olympics in '36, and you know what was his answer to "My God, we cannot have Olympics in a country which is doing to Jews sport." That that uh, sport is above politics. We shouldn't be concerned by religious conflicts in Germany. <laughs> I mean, this was almost uh, Ernst Jones' line. You know that he. In a letter, he even has some speculations on how maybe one can understand Germans that a healthy national body can sustain, not to lose its vitality, only a certain amount of foreign blood. And then he goes into these extremely tasteless speculations on how is it 5 or 8 percent, even proposes a kind of a scientific estimation of how many no, no, he really was. And he was also the main bad influence in, you know, this is one of the more shame, uh, shame, shameless acts of technique. As you know, when there was in 34, the basically Dolphus, the, the rightist coup d'etat in Austria, they abolished democracy. Uh, Austrian social democrats, all the honors go to them. Uh, they at least organized some street fight resistance. There were in the red suburbs of Vienna fights going on, and uh, the official party line of Psycho Austrian Psychoanalytic Association was, we stay out of this, it's not our struggle. But of course, fuck it, staying out of it meant de facto accepting. It was again, the only good guys were, for example, I think Sandor Ferenczi, no, and some of them who were like a little bit more of the left wing. You know, if you are looking for the golden era of European university, there you, you can say whatever you want about, uh, how is the guy called, uh, George Lukacs, the great Marxist, no? But this was the first miracle. You know that in, in the spring of 1919 or when, you know, you have for a couple of months the Soviet Republic in Hungary. And... Lukács was the Minister of Education. I mean, it's a dream what he did then. He, he, although he personally was not too much sympathetic to psychoanalysis, he nominated as a minister Sandor Ferenczi as the head of the first, it's the first university psychoanalytic department. Then he put Bella Bartok, uh, music and so on. It's, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. For, and Lukács, maybe you know this story, I quote it somewhere, it's a, it's a wonderful story. Uh, 
Lukács was personally a kind of a hero. I don't like Adorno, who attacks Lukács as a kind of a conformist, saying him. No, listen, Fred Jameson, maybe you know the story, gave me a wonderful argument here. You know, uh, Adorno wrote in 57, I think, uh, well-known text, brilliantly written as it is all by Adorno, called the Erpreste Versammlung, the uh, Enforced Reconciliation. It's basically an attack on Lukács as selling his critical thought to Stalinism, blah, blah. Okay, okay, of course, Lukács did his big shot in his youth in the 20s, it's true. But nonetheless, as Fred Jensen drew my attention to this, that there are a couple of things which disturb this image. The irony is that at the very point, at the very moment when Adorno was writing this, Lukács was in prison. In, in Bucharest, you know, because Lukács heroically did participate in the 56 rebellion. He even again joined the Imre Nach government and then was arrested by Russians and, and they were all put in uh, to the, uh, to the uh, for one year and then some were shot, some not, but you know, it's a little bit cynical of, for example, the last lines there, stylistically brilliantly, this is the most famous anti-Lukács line of Adorno. He says that Lukács is the guy who confuses the sound of his chains with the voice of the world spirit of history, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, at that point, Lukács did have literal chains, no? And to, and to go even further, the very journal, the Neue Rundschau, whatever, where Adorno published his text, was financed by CIA as anti-communist cultural struggle. So, uh, uh, you know, it's not as innocent. Also, this is for me a true ethics. Uh, I read in a biography of Lukács that uh, they, by they I mean the new regime, Kader, when they organized a trial against Imre Nach and those who led the 56 rebellion, they wanted Lukács as a witness. Why? Because they, of course, how do you call it, uh, uh, taped, secretly recorded the phone conversation among the members of this new anti-Soviet whatever government, and they heard there how Lukács often didn't agree with them. He said, no, this means we rejoin bourgeois capitalism, I don't agree, I'm still a socialist. And they told Lukács, we don't want you to lie. Just say publicly what you said to them. And he said, no, that wouldn't be fair. I said that in private, you know, like, it would be put to a total different... He insisted to the end, and he really risked. They let him leave, then partially rehabilitate him, but he... And then, uh, you know the nicest story. Then we go to Hegel. Don't you it's a beautiful story. That, uh, it's a gesture. That when, when a policeman came to arrest Lukács after the Soviet army took over uh, Budapest, you know, an NKVD officer approached him, claiming... Uh, Please give us any weapons you have. Lukács went for his pen and said, that's the only weapon I have. <laughs> ah, it's a nice gesture. <laughs> Whatever you say, it's a nice gesture. What do you think of Ferenki? Sorry? Ferenki. Sorry, did? Ferenki, the psychoanalyst. Which one? Ferenki, yeah. What do you think of his work? Uh, uh, unfortunately, no. I'm not too. It is interesting, blah, 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 but I don't... Uh, he was a little bit crazy, if you ask me. Because, okay, he was doing things which cannot but appear extremely sympathetic. For example, he 
did something which, again, many of those uh, libertarian psychoanalysts found so attractive. He was well known sometimes to do something, again, which in a way is marvelous. When he was doing analysis and the patient was doing his associations, he often interrupted, no, this gave me now an idea, please, you stand up, I lay down, and he added his associations, and so on, you know. Okay, sympathetic, and so on, and so on. He was part of that so-called uh, autophenical also, you know, of that so-called Freudian left. You know, the guy who is more a kind of a liberal, but you know, Russell Jacobi. He wrote an interesting book on the Freudian left. It's even a good journalistic school, discovering that there was a circle way into the 40s, 50s of a couple of them, Otto Fenichel, I don't know, and so on, who were exchanging regularly letters, a kind of a Freudian, Freudian left, and so on, and so on. No? He gives also a wonderful portrait of the confusion of Freudians, uh, you know, when all these typically mid-European Germans found, uh, 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 found themselves, uh, found, uh, found themselves in, the, in, in the United States, how they didn't understand the culture and all the, all the problems. With it's, a, it's a wonderful fact. Okay, I'm doing too much now, maybe. Let me just, maybe we should begin with something I couldn't resist some remarks on, I really liked it, the yesterday's, you were all there, of course, I hope, yesterday's talk by Rancière. And incidentally, I always liked this Hegelian systematizing. Did you notice how Badiou, me, Rancière, how we formed a very nice classical philosophical triad. You know, this triad of, to put it in religious terms, the true, the good, the beautiful, or in Kantian terms, uh, a pure reason, practical reason, aesthetic judgment. But you was doing pure reason, ontology, logic, I was doing politics, practical, Rancière was doing aesthetics. So we were a nice philosophical trio. No? Uh, and, uh, did you... Uh, uh, what I... Uh, uh, this morning I had a brief conversation with, and we talked about how, you know, that Rancière likes Westerns by uh, Anthony Mann. Yeah, it's even translated in one of his English books now, his wonderful essay on Anthony Mann. And now I was asking, because the other candidate for me is Delmer Days, but okay, let's go on uh, to more uh, serious stuff. Let me tell you, well, where I thought he will agree with me, but he didn't. And I'm still not sure with what. You remember that wonderful vision of... And it worked very well. It almost it did the impossible. I noticed that some of you wanted to applaud me also. Namely, you think Hitchcock is unbeatable. But it worked so nice, the Giga Vertov clips, no? that they, far from being overshadowed by the Hitchcock clips, it worked almost better. Okay, but uh, first, uh, I see some nonetheless dark moments in it. I verified it yesterday evening on Wikipedia and so on. That, as I hinted yesterday, uh, Vertov was member of that, uh, how should I call it, uh, uh, Gnostic materialist mechanic movement, which was not a kind of a freakish marginal movement, but the most po popular form of collective ideology, hundreds of thousands of people 
participating in it throughout the 20s in the Soviet Union. It was a kind of a, it really points towards today's so-called technological gnosis. The idea was that man is a deficient being with regard to machines and that the future should be to make ourselves totally disponible to ourselves biologically, to make us totally reproducible without sexuality. Sexuality was for, was for them the last vestige of the bourgeois ideology and so on. And, and to turn us into machines. The model was precisely man is not a well-made machine. I quote in my Defense of Lost Causes book, even Trotsky has one wonderfully arrogant statement where he says the next big task of the Bolshevik movement is to reconstruct man. And he says openly, first we must study biologically and, as Trotsky puts it, and also that part of neuronal biology which is usually called psychology, and then we must reconstruct man so that, it's a wonderful rhetorical ending, so that we can then say goodbye homo sapiens. You did your work, now we need something higher, and so on. And so that uh, this idea totally with today's technosis that, that, uh, that uh, science is enabling us today to reach immortality. They already had this dream, which is today the dream of digital immortality, you know, that you change uh, our personal identity into uh, software, which can then be reproduced, copied from one to another hardware, and in this way you have immortality. Uh, it was really a kind of a, meta a metaphysical dream, which was extremely, I emphasize this, this wasn't a couple of freaks. This was hundreds of thousands, extremely important, and again, Vertov was part of that. His reliance on camera was precisely that the problem of humans, machines, is that they are less than, less reliable than cameras. What was very interesting here was that this mechanical, however you call them, mechanic utopias, got connected with Pavlov, Pavlovian, this uh, conditional reflex psychology, and uh, they developed an entire theory ferociously against sexuality, that sexuality is that, as yesterday, that moment of destability, fascination, which disturbs this blissful plurality of the flow of life. So they tried to demonstrate, even physiologically, that sexuality, that from the standpoint of the health of the organism, sexuality is as such pathological. And now comes the nice point of irony. This is how it was in 24-25 in Russia. They were so aggressive looking for the support of Pavlov, that Trotsky, he was here a good guy, who was for Freud, Trotsky, on behalf of the Bolshevik oppressor, wrote a desperate letter to Pavlov, trying to convince him, give Freud a chance, perhaps, nonetheless. So, you see, far from being oppressed, no, psychoanalysis was, first I put it, officially supported by, by the early Bolsheviks and so on. But I want to say, sorry, what I want to say is that this was an extremely strong <coughs> strong tendency. Uh, ah, what should interest me is also what was their view of psychology? They had literal plans to turn humans into machines. One of their theories said that emotions are something outdated. That man should become like 
a machine where, for example, you know who a machine, if the machine gets too hot, it doesn't cry. Just, you have a measure which shows you what's the temperature. That we should de develop the same functionalization of emotions. Emotions are just a wrongly confused way for an organism to measure its malfunctioning. We should replace emotions, sorry, yeah? There's a great novel that was written exactly at that time but by someone from within the system. It's the best science fiction novel. I mean this Zanyatin, we? Zanyatin. I know this one. But you know also others which are the, the big hero of now. He's discovered as the greatest classic. I think he was Andrei Platonov. He also did in the Chevengur and so on. He was also member of this, how should I put it, anti-sexual utopia. Now we come to the, to the shock, which, on which I rely a lot in my book, that uh, this is how paradoxically we should understand Stalin's popularity. Stalin ideologically meant a break with this crazy utopia and a return to common sense. Because, uh, Stalin, Stalin's message was, which is why Sta when Stalin introduced socialist realism, it was so immensely popular. No? Stalin's message was enough of this stupid, like what you saw yesterday, formalist experiments, we need stories where people will cry, identify, and so on. Even, horrible as it may sound, the Stalinist show trials can be read as some kind of return to traditional morality, because the line of this radical utopian Gnostic Bolsheviks was that uh, culpability is a bourgeois notion. Or if you are a criminal, we should treat you as a machine which malfunctioned. And it's not a question of, you don't punish a machine. You either destroy it if it too, runs too bad or reconstruct it. And they strictly insisted that that's how you should so, the, the very, paradoxically, that's the cruel irony, the very idea of, uh, the very idea of, uh, of punishment, show trials, paradoxically brought back this, although, I mean, I'm not an idiot, it was all a fake, I know, I know, but formally, it brought back the idea of we are responsible ethical subjects, responsible for what we do and we should be punished for that, no? No, 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 it's a, it's a, Things, how to put it, I think that the, the, the history of the Soviet Union is very complex and the 20s are still the enigma. You cannot simply play the game of, you know, the good early time. And what happens? Okay, but let's not get lost in it. What I want to do is, can I, can I, can I imply something that you all know vertigo? I mean, we are. In, in a civilized society. No, I hope. Uh, this is how I treated my small son. I told him, I told him, listen, you should stick to the great values of Western civilization. He asked me, what does this mean? Then I told him, if you know the difference between King Oedipus and Oedipus et Colonus, that's bullshit, that's your problem. If you don't know the difference between first and second version of Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, then it's different. <laughs> here you stuck, no? Okay, so, seriously. Uh, 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 there are so many interesting things to add. I improvised a little bit crazily yesterday to what uh, Rassier said about, about vertigo. I mean, we could have made a whole seminar on vertigo illustrating precisely the points I was making here. 
for example, the same mental experiment you remember, which I mentioned quickly yesterday, about vertigo as how, and I think that's the key to the story, that's Hitchcock's greatness, how this is the true break with the classical narrative. Following the classical narrative, the movie should have ended with the first Madeleine's suicide. And then it would have been a kind of a standard ultra-romantic story. It even could have been given a feminist touch, like the violence of male love pushes the woman towards suicide, and so on and so on. You can, again, just imagine Scotty witnessing the suit and then the trial and Scotty desperate wandering alone and that's the end of the movie. It's a complete, fully consistent narrative. Hitchcock's genius is that then the story goes on, but how does it go on? Things are, things are pretty mysterious there. Okay, I will not spend all the time saying this to give you another idea. Uh, did you notice, okay, if you know Vertigo you know Psycho, of course, everybody knows Psycho. Did you notice that Psycho relies on exactly the same narrative duality gap? Imagine Psycho ending just before the shower murder, with uh, Marion deciding, I will return to Phoenix, I will be back the bar, and then as if to purify herself taking a shower. It would be a perfect short uh, moralistic, like kind of a moral short story movie about a woman, young woman, because of her difficult situation, tempted by the way, by the path of crime, and then discover, and then encountering in the figure of Norman her own future if she follows this path of crime. This is like a warning, like if I go to the end, I will end up like that madman, and then this sober scar, you know, of innocence saved in the last minute. Are you aware that it works perfectly as a kind of a moralistic short novel or whatever, a kind of, I think that it would have been about 45 minute story, no? And again, what one should emphasize for is that there is no, in Psycho, no tragic continuity between first and second part. I think it's totally wrong to claim, like, I don't know, uh, that Norman, sometimes they play on this, you know, the similarity of names, the mirror relationship, Marion-Norman, that Norman is the dark shadow. No, it's, it's total gap. There is no necessity. Another dimension brutally intrudes. Let's go further. Uh, uh, I think that what... What was so fascinating for Ranciere in Vertov, you know, how, how did that montage of the multiplicity of this spontaneous communism work? So that you had this, basically it was formalist, but in the elementary sense of that, uh, I think, and Ranciere, I later, or this morning, talked with him, he, he immediately confessed this point, that it's not simply that you put different things which are not connected and count on or somehow all these are elements of the plurality of spontaneous communism. He was playing on these subtle formal echoes of, of gestures, you know, like the round gesture here, the gesture of the... You know, like the, the, the scenes were formally echoing each other at a purely formal level and I think that you should never underestimate the level to which 
Hitchcock also worked in this way. For example, he didn't go far enough here, Rancière. You know that the central formal motive of vertigo is the spiral, no? Which you, you get it how? First, you get it in the very credit sequence, the spirals coming out of the eye. Then you get it, the spiral of, uh, the spiral of uh, Scotty is making the tours all the time following Madeleine. Then you get uh, the uh, two central scenes when he, Scotty, embraces here Madeleine, the spiral, the full circle movement of the camera. Then you have the spiral, okay, not full, but nonetheless up the stairs. Then you have absolutely central uh, the spiral in the hair. You know that Carlotta Valdez hair has a spiral here and so on and so on. I think that this is the way to read Hitchcock. This, how to put it, this, the, this is, I think, where cinema, one of the ways to claim where cinema becomes art, maybe a communist art, no? In the sense of uh, what really matters is not the explicit narrative, it's all this thickness, how should I call it, of the background, of all these formal motives which sustain it. And I, uh, uh, once in one of my books I mentioned, for example, the other late uh, Sergei Eisenstein's masterpiece, Ivan the Terrible, which is all, also all built on this moment of rage, which can be shouting, visual rage, just a kind of extra intensity. I'm so sad we don't have time to, to go to, to debate more, but you, as you can see, okay, I propose you a deal. Uh, I have your, <laughs> I have your email, no? Can I send you, and you have that email. Yeah. So you are my access to orgy, because the Can I, that's the only, or if you are interested in my sheet, you don't have to read it. Because you know what I really hate? People who give me their book and then ask you, oh, did you already read it? And so on, you know, like, if I give you something, you can also use it as a toilet paper. I will not be there wanting you, know? Uh, what if I simply send you one or two texts unpublished where I developed so that you will get all of it, no? But let me go, yeah, so, and again, uh, I send it to you, you send it further. Okay, that's done. You will get it like this, this evening, probably. When are you leaving? Um, living? No, no, not living, being alive, but living like fucking off, like going. Oh, we're living alive. So you can still time tomorrow. <laughs> no, you see how I'm a pure philosopher, but I had to express myself in plastic terms so that you can follow my sublime thought. <laughs> what, is it, what is it on? It's on video. Sorry? It's on video. Uh, uh, no, no. Uh, also, yes, because now I, my God, I'm getting old. I, I lost the connection because at some point here, okay, it will come later to me. Uh, I have, no, uh, let's go back to this uh, psycho. And so, yes, to this, uh, how should I call it? Uh, this, yes, this density of motives, which formal motives, which reverberate and so on and so on. Uh, uh, did you, for example, I mean, to read Hitchcock in this Vertovian way? would have been wonderful. For example, do you remember, do you remember the scene from that slightly ridiculous dream sequence, the scene of that uh, uh, James Stewart's face, terrified, staring into the camera, just the head and all those lines behind moving. And then 
followed by a body falling. For example, just name that, for example. Did you notice how in Psycho, the second murder, which is for me the crucial one, much more effective, Arbogast murder, detective, is done in exactly, you have the same uh, counterposition of two motives. You remember when the detective Arbogast is falling down the stairs, you have the same, oh, his head like this and the background moving, and then a jump to his body falling down. And I did an analysis somewhere where, I don't, it's already in, in Hitchcock's early, it's a little boring film, but it has some masterful moments, the murder, where you have for the, for the first time uh, the same mechanism. Or as I developed, maybe you read it now, it's out of print, but the Twitter printed for them, uh, that book that I co-edited, all you wanted to know about, blah, blah, the Hitchcock Lacombe book. No? I, I find there another motive, which I think is crucial to entire Hitchcock. If you look at Arbogast murder in Psycho, you remember how it is done. The detective Arbogast enters the mother's house and approaches the stairs. Incidentally, a lot can be said already about this house. Because, I think I already mentioned this video, that Psycho can also be read as an architectural film. The problem of Norman Bates is that he is divided between two places. This Gothic and Gothic old house, mother and modern flat motel. So my ironic comment is, would Psycho still have been possible if if they would have hired some Frank Gary type idiot who would do this postmodern motel where the motel would already combine modernity with this gothic kitschy moments. <laughs> what happens then? Okay, but let's go on. Uh, uh, okay, another association also important. This is, I think, how you should read Hitchcock in this wonderful teleological way of motives pointing not only to the past but even to the future. You remember from Vertigo, one mysterious ship, which is never explained, it's left a mystery. You remember, before he makes his court, he makes contact with Madeleine, when he still follows her around San Francisco. You remember, on a small hill, he enters a villa, kind of a private small hotel, whatever, and it's a kind of a gothic old house, and from down, from his car, uh, Scotty sees just on the first floor, sorry, I'm talking now in the American, second floor. Second floor uh, uh, window, he sees her profile. Then he goes in, you remember that old lady telling him, who is very mysterious, evil bitch personified, I claim, telling him, uh, but, 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 but there is no one up there, you know, and there was no one there. The mis this mystery is a kind of a empty, Deadlock, and it's never explained, it's never accounted for afterwards. I claim in purely visual motives, this idea of a non-existing entity appearing on the second floor of an old gothic house points towards uh, uh, the mother, you know, exactly in the same way Marion sees, you know, when visiting the motel, you know, you see the mother up there. As an as a uh, Norman Bates mother, as an as an as a shadow, just a profile and so on. It's it's wonderful to read Hitchcock in this way. So again, back to Arbogast murder. How it is shot? You remember Arbogast enters the house. You see the stairs. Arbogast goes up. 
approaches the, uh, the stairs. Up till this point, you have a standard procedure of exchanging subjective, that is to say, point of view and objective shot. You have shots of Arbogas climbing up, and you have the shots of point of view, what Arbo... Okay, that any idiot can do that. But look at it, and you will notice then something typically Hitchcockian happens. Then, the, in an extremely complicated so-called crane shot, and the irony is that Marion is Marion Crane, crane uh, the camera moves up to this almost geometric, what in Hitchcockian literature is called God's point of view shot. Up, you see up from up like seeing a plane, and then from this totally objective up, then uh, Mother Norman, we don't know who is the monster, enters. And then we have the jump to that phase of, okay. What I'm saying is that uh, what Hitchcock does here is something very interesting at the level of subjective economy. He, he first produces, let's call it a divine, all-knowing shot, and that jumps to a very strange subjective point of view shot, which is the point of view shot from an impossible subjectivity. Impossible in the sense of too intense, too crazy. The, the violence of that shot, uh, uh, when we see uh, uh, Detective Arbogas falling, is that it's supposed to be from the standpoint of the murderer. But we are thrown violently into the standpoint, point of view, of someone who we even don't, do not know who he is. I claim that there is a whole negative theology here. It is as if this divine neutrality itself gets subjectivized as a kind of evil subjectivity. And I claim that throughout Hitchcock you find the same mechanism. You find it already in murder from, not, don't confuse it with Dialogue for a Murder, from 1930, 31, one of his first talking movies. Then uh, you remember the classical scene from when there is fire in the city Bodega Bay from the birds. It's exactly the same. After the gas station catches fire, you get the exchange of point of view and objective shot of uh, Melanie, Tipihedren, Melanie, shock, and what she sees. Then you get, again, this, you remember, it's wonderfully done, this divine point of view shot from above of the entire Bodega Bay. You see everything, the whole city, fire, and so on. And here, Hitchcock does the same shift from objectivity to impossible subjectivity, but he does it within the same shot. It's wonderfully done. It's uh, because he tricks you, he dupes you by cheating you. First, you think that the whole point of that objective shot from far above the whole city is just the logic of what we call establishing shot, you know, so that you don't get lost in detail, uh, in detail, quick cuts and so on, uh, local shots, so that you get the overview of the entire scene. But you remember what then happens within the same shot. From behind, first one bird enters, then another bird, and so on, so that the objectivity itself is subjectivized, and as such, it becomes an evil gaze. It's a one. It's a one. It's wonderfully done. I mean, as far as I know, only Hitchcock was able to do was able to do things like this. So uh, back to Badiou. Yes, now I come to Badiou. Now, I talk with, this, uh, with him about this, and he, of course, doesn't agree. But I still think I am right, so I will 
as they put it in California, share my experience with you. No? <laughs> uh, you know his idea, you just have to know the basics. He developed it up there in the next house of this idea of his uh, ontology or rather phenomenology of the worlds based on the notions of intensity. How you have minimum intensity, maximum intensity, like where, let's say, the world is a social world, maximum intensity is that element which fully stands for what it is, characterizes it, and so on and so on. Uh, she only operates between these two limits, minimum, maximum intensity. What I am tempted to do, and that was the point of uh, how, uh, when I was, was I developing here or at my talk, I don't know where, this idea of how, uh, yes, when I was talking uh, about this, referring to Deleuze about this uh, uh, viewing things with an inhuman view, with too much intensity, in the sense that, that what you see becomes, you know, when I mentioned, for example, if CIA has some shots of what happens in the last minutes, or if we were to get shots of how Jews were actually killing Jews. Of course, my point is the following one. Of course, this is part of reality. But it's so intense that if you effectively were to confront it, it would, you would have endured a reality externalist. You would have, as it were, lost your reality. I mean, no, who will be now the victim? Be you, please. Okay. It's just a mental experiment. I warn you, taste. <laughs> this is, I'm a gentle person. I'm only doing this to sacrifice myself so that you will understand it. Again, to, okay. Let's say that I will now, I don't know, take scissors and pick up one of your eyes and swallow it. <laughs> I claim that momentarily you would have gotten the loss of reality. You would say, no, this cannot, ha you know, like the intensity would have been too much. It doesn't fit the coordinates of our life. What? So I claim that, that uh, uh, this is uh, how I would, in a very friendly way of constructive criticism and so on, uh, supplement Badiou. I claim that each world, what he calls world, this transcendentally constituted space, has not only non-existent minimum and maximum intensity, but also has a point of excessive intensity, which is nonetheless inherent to it. I'm not talking about you have a certain world, like our world, and then, I don't know, aliens are coming, all of a sudden this glass starts to talk or whatever, and then, of course, we lose the sense of reality, like, where are we? No, 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 I'm saying that the very implicit logic of the intensity of the system, of the world, you know what I mean, shouldn't reach beyond a certain limit. If you go beyond over-intensity, the world falls apart. And I think, again, this mechanism is crucial for event, for, uh, for how to account for event, how to account for, uh, how to account for falling apart of a certain world and so on. That, you know, 
like when intensity, but again, it is still the, the immanent intensity. For example, in the most naive sense, again, what I said, the inten it can be the intensity of sexual pleasure, it can be the intensity of, uh, of, of, of torture, pain, which is why, I'm sorry if I repeat myself here, which is why uh, this is, I think, one of the, if you want to experience this gap at the level of intensity, Pornography is a case, I thought. I thought. You know, probably you know it, it's my old motive of how pornography, if anything, is the most heavily censored genre of them all. In what sense? Of course, <laughs> you see everything, no? But, okay, not only is it censored in the way I already developed, you know, all those feminine expressions, very censored, but more radical. Did you notice my old story, I know? Did you notice something very strange about pornography? How, at least the classical hardcore pornography, the story has to be ridiculous. I mean, stories are so stupid, stories that you, that introduce the act and so on, that I think they are so stupid that you cannot say, oh, these are stupid cheap guys who are, no, they, are, they cannot be so stupid. I think they follow some kind of ethical code injunction the narrative has to be stupid. I mean, I will not borrow, bore you with examples. I remember once, even now I'm traumatized, when I was young, you know, the classical story, you know, like the wife is home alone, a plumberer comes and says, I fixed the hole in the kitchen. Then she says, but I have another hole. Can you also <laughs> You know, like you are, uh, you are deep. I mean, this was at some point even for me the most funny part. This totally ridiculous. What is prohibited is to have both at the same time. The choice is this one. Either you have an emotionally engaging story, or you see it all. What you cannot have, that's prohibited, is, that would be, have been too much of intensity. It's a full melodrama. When you cry, in my second book, Looking Away, I use the tasteless example of, imagine, I don't like the movie so much, imagine uh, out of Africa. You know, the scene where, uh, Robert Redford and uh, uh, Meryl Streep finally do it. Imagine the same film, the same scene, just ten minutes more. When they embrace, you see the penis penetrating and so on and so on. It doesn't work. You have to make a choice. Now I know what you will say, but am I aware, idiot, that precisely where I am here? Catherine Brea was here, you know, the French director who is trying to do precisely this. Did you see her romance or what? Which tries to be a hardcore movie in the sense that you see everything, but nonetheless with all the, how should I call it naively, narrative, dramatic intensity. I claim that's why she doesn't work, in the sense of that's why her success is limited. For the general public, there is some kind of resistance there. Now you will tell me that was the standard reproach to me. Sophie finds the peak of perverse guy, told me, ha, ha, Slavo, you really must be old. Where do you live? Don't you know that this type of hardcore, you got it like half a century ago, no? And then, okay, ask her, okay, I want to follow new tendencies. What is going on now? She told me gonzo, so-called. And then I looked at it, gonzo is even worse. You know this so-called gonzo? It's, let's call it interactive, embedded pornography. It's where, stupid as the story is, they don't even pretend that it's a story, but the actors in a comical way interact with the camera, you know. 
You hear the voice say, why don't you spread your legs a little bit more? The actress makes a funny remark and so on. This kind, And I think the censorship is here even stronger. They are afraid even of that minimum of comical stupid narrative. Narrative must be totally prohibited. You must be all the time reminded, no, 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 it's just a movie, it's not a real story, and so on and so on. No? So again, this is how I would have attacked Let's speak behind the back of my maybe best friend. But the only way to prove that he's my best friend is to... Uh, incidentally, you know that once we made, talking with you, a wonderful comical critical analysis where, as you maybe know, if some of you are, have something to do with psychoanalysis, that the ideal, one of the ideal couples in psychoanalysis is le maître et l'hystérique, master and the hysteric. Master, the peaceful one, just says something, and hysteric, the one who is bothering, and well, it's clear. Elaine and me, he's the master, I'm the hysteric, you know. Even at the level of text, you know, I write all the time hundreds of pages about him, against him. He just, from time to time, does one line in a footnote and so on, and we decided to go on like this. We said, no, he even proposed, why don't we have a big debate? I told him, do you hate me? Do you want to ruin our friendship? Do you want... I told him, do you want anti-Casablanca? Do you know, ask to walk out and say that's the end of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> and then we decided that that's our fate. I will endlessly write about him. He will uh, persist in this royal attitude, you know, of kind of a interesting, kind of a, you know, for example, there is one, one kind of a, a patronizingly benevolently critical remark in, in his logic of the world, I think, and uh, I love it, I love it this way. So again, going on with, uh, but you, some bad things about the guy, but you know what this means, incidentally. This means that he's, how should I put it, he's one of the few, he's, at least for me, I think so many other philosophical options today are exhausted. They did great things, but they are exhausted. Heideggerianism, I respect it, together with Alain, but it's exhausted, it, reached, it did reach his limit, and so on and so on, and he, and then some of his followers around him, like that uh, speculative realism stuff, Kenton Meyasu and others, if you ask me, these are the only things that things are happening today, that philosophy is alive, or even in Germany, again, I mentioned Sloterdijk, I'm sorry to tell you, but I think he is alive. He may be the political enemy, but uh, and that's the tragedy of Habermas. That's why I think Habermas... You remember there was a big philosophical scandal in Europe, I think, some ten years, a little bit less ago, when uh, Sloterdijk wrote a text, something like Regel, the Rules of the Human Zoo, where uh, he was... What he want, there I was totally on Sloterdijk's side, because... All he wanted to say, and here I totally agree with him, was that the fact of biotechnology and so on forces us to re con uh, confront us with new ethical dilemmas, deadlocks, where you can no longer simply apply the old norms. And the ultimate proof, I think, is Habermas himself here. What, what is Habermas's answer? It's Let's not do it. No wonder Habermas co-wrote, not co-wrote, he just put together texts 
a book with, with Pope, with Cardinal Ratzinger, both had this conclusion. Uh, if we start to manipulate genetically or with pharmacochemistry, whatever, our psychic properties, this ruins the fundamentals of our ethics and of our idea of human dignity where to get something you have hardly to work for it and so on and so on. You know, all these stories, for example, if I can, if you are a oh, no, I will be wrong. I am the very guy. If I am a coward and you give me a pill which simply, uh, which simply strengthens my courage, then suddenly uh, being courageous or not loses its status of an autonomous ethical decision. It's simply a matter of self-manipulation or how others manipulate me and so on and so on. So the idea is to simplify it. Ratzinger and Habermas, it's a very sad one. It's a fiasco of enlightenment. It, it is. If we go too far here in genetic manipulations, we ruin the basic notion of our ethical autonomy. So let's not do it. So let's put a frontier there. I think that not only is this impracticable, de facto, like uh, what I was so interested when I visited Shanghai was, I mean, we here in Europe border with some shitty ethical dilemmas, they are doing it like crazy there, no? in China. Like, they already have plans to control in the long term the entire population, the basic features, and so on, and everybody is doing it. You know that recently I spoke with some American investigative journalists who told me that the latest thing going on in military technology and that not only Americans, all American Chinese are already doing it like crazy, is a new level of, how should I call it, pharmaconeuronal psychological warfare, where, uh, it, what, for example, they told me that they did this, I speak in the past, past tense, they already can do this. It's very primitive logic, basically. They discovered that when you are really afraid, full of shit, in a true panic, uh, your brains emit a certain electromagnetic radiation whatsoever. So then they draw the obvious conclusion, why don't we do it the other way around? And they discovered that it works. If you bombard me with this type of waves, I will be automatically, physiologically, thrown into a panic. And uh, again, it's primitive, but it works, and I was told that they already have, it's still clumsy, but some kind of elementary machines where a certain space, like a baseball field, something like that, every human being there, simply, you press a button, they are all in panic. I mean, that's the future, and I simply think uh, I mean, Chinese know how to do it now in this combination of authoritarian socialism and, and capitalism. One thing is the, the state wants to control the entire population. On the other hand, they are already building, they even showed me some plans in the suburbs of Shanghai, mega clinics for the rich Western medical tourists. The idea is that in a year or two, they told me, you will be able to go there if you are rich, they will do all the genetic research, you know, all this. They're already doing it in India. Yeah, but in what sense is it already a mass, massive? It is? Well, in India you can get all the healthcare you want cheaper 
Mm. Nicer service and all that, then it's easily... No, 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 I know, I know, I know. Maybe I focus too much on trainings. I know. So what I'm saying is that, or you know what, really, why I really think we are approaching some kind of apocalyptic times, not in the bad sense, maybe it will be the hope of something new, which has just become aware that we are approaching some zero point. For example, I'm so interested in following this trend, where I was told that you already can do it, that... You can directly link your neurons to a computer so that then, for example, you can move objects only by thinking. You know, you don't even need that Stephen Hawking famous one finger that he can move. No, you can, and uh, uh, they, of course, it's still done on a very primitive, at a very primitive level. But I was told, for example, they already can decode by wiring you, your neurons, this ele very elementary mental signals of up, down, left, right. So at NYU even, I think, I was told, they already have a computer game that you can play just with your mind. You don't have this joystick. I never got it by the joystick, it sounds so masturbatory. <laughs> you know that, that, like, you move, but you know what's so horrible is that you can intervene into reality by the mere power of thinking, and of course, the way they do it with technology, to make us swallow this, they always start with how this will help invalids and so on and so on. I saw a report, maybe you did it, a couple of months ago, it was reported, it was reported that in... Uh, that in London they already had this, how do you call it, for, it's politically incorrect to say, how to say, crippled people, movement challenge or what? <laughs> okay, whatever, disabled, yeah, okay, sorry, no fun here, intended. just that taste. Uh, that, you know, you don't even have to, that, you can simply move the wheelchair or what, uh, simply, this technology is over a decade old where they fuse the nerves. Into uh -huh. Yeah, but the point is this will get more and more developed. And what interests me, that's the philosophical question here, is uh, how will this affect our self-identity? I claim that our self-identity is based on this distinction between that's me, that's out there reality. I think what I want Reality is out there. Our notion of freedom is based on this. Because the next thing, as that military example reminds us immediately, you know, if it goes out, it goes in. That is to say, if you can move an object with your thought, then your thoughts can also be moved by... Sorry. There's a problem, though, with that. A friend yeah. of mine is a computer scientist, and yeah. he's working on reading the neuroscience. Ah, I never know you. You are the guy who... You are the rap rapist priest advocate. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, no, and, but uh, apparently there, there are certain things that your brain does, and it doesn't function as we want it to. Yeah. For example, if, if I ask you, you know, what's 2 plus 2, yeah. and you say 4, there's a part of your brain that does the mathematics. And if I keep asking you the same... Uh, yeah. thing. It'll go from the party that does the mathematics to memory, right? Yeah. So, but if I keep giving you different additions, like, yeah. you know, 2 plus 2, uh, 5 plus what, yeah. whatever, we keep going on, it should constantly fire the mathematical part of your brain. But every so often, it fires some other part of your brain. That's just unexplainable. It's, it's actually ruined my friend's postdoc. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you know, because they've all yeah. gone back to the drawing board now. So because it's, you know what makes this interesting? That is it truly just some kind of, you know, like, 
in every mechanism things misfire from time to time? Or can you read some deeper defense of whatever mechanism meaning into it? Um, I'm not sure. No, it, 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 it's just, it, it really is just, just the way we want the brain to work. Or, or it, yeah, yeah. Machine, it, it's just yeah. not doing it. It's because just, it, yeah. I, think, I, think, I don't know if there's some... Some quantum element to it, or uh, something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 No. No. Uh, okay. But uh, sorry. Where were we? Uh, yeah. 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 Which, yeah. Okay. Intensity. All that stuff, and so on. So here, I think that we should take seriously what goes on in today's brain sciences, and so on. Now, I am not here. I think the trick is to avoid, on the one hand, this naive technosis. Oh, wonderful! We will become like gods. We will, you know, just moving things with our immersed into the world whatever, but also we should avoid this uh, nihilistic pessimism, oh, the end of humanity, the end of being human, and so on, and so on. All I'm saying is that we should openly confront the problem. And that, coming back to Slotterdijk, I think all he wanted is this, and uh, the Habermas and some of his groupies, how should I put it, around, uh, mounted in Germany a ferocious attack, proclaiming uh, Sloterdijk an advocate of kind of neo-Nazi genetics and so on and so on. I mean, it was slightly ridiculous, first of all, no? So, coming back to what I was saying, uh, uh, I don't agree with Sloterdijk, but for example, his last book, which is even a big bestseller in Germany, Du musst dein Leben ändern, You Must Change Your Life. The idea, it's a nice one, is that what we misread as this post-secular rise of the religious, it's not this, it's simply, it has nothing to do with religious spirituality, that is just the new form of emerging anthropology, where the idea is almost like Judith Butler Foucault, that through practice you have to form, reform yourself, and that's why he finds a wonderful underlying concept where he puts together people like creative thinkers, models, top sportsmen, and so on, you know. All these totally different levels where the constant is through hard work, discipline, training, you form, form yourself. And uh, then there comes the pearl. He, he claims that, and he convinced me, that the central religious figure of the 20th century is how is that creep called, uh, I forgot his name, who, who is the founder of, of Scientology? L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, Ron Hubbard, yeah. Because he says that, that, that uh, and he focuses on something which I find quite fascinating, how Ron Hubbard inverted the usual historical line, which is something was, let's say, if you are modern, secular, atheist, you are respectful. You say old sacred texts. Your line is, once they were taken immediately, seriously, today we should admire them, but not for their cognitive, ethical value, but as beautiful monuments, aesthetics, and so on. Rob, he did, Hubbard did the opposite. Do you know that, and uh, you can prove it by letters, I love this, do you know that he started writing shitty science fiction novels? Then he said, Maybe they will sell better if I sell them as a religion, as truth, because that would be, no? And again, uh, he 
It's a very good book by Sloterdijk. He focuses some fundamental problem about how beliefs function today that we shouldn't read. It's a very important insight into how it's not really the return of the religious in the old sense. So again, it, uh, this is why I even know some people who are close to Habermas. They told me, Habermas, I don't hate him. He's in an almost tragic personal position. On the one hand, he's respected, you know. For example, French told me 10 years ago or five when Tony Blair was still in power in England, whenever Habermas made a philosophy trip there, who I don't know, London School of Economics or when, for one evening he always disappeared and it was known, it was an evening with, uh, with Tony Blair and so on, he was meeting uh, Helmut Schmidt when he was... Trying, I mean, he is, is de facto, or was he now at least, as they put it, uh, European community state philosopher. But at the same time, he is bitterly aware that as a philosopher, he is no longer alive. It's simply, in a way, irrelevant. No. So, again, back to Badiou, I consider him extremely relevant. But uh, let me... Did you just say irrelevant or relevant? My God. Okay, I mean, my defense will be this one. Uh, you know, if I am a Freudian, then the rule that sips of tongue means something don't apply. <laughs> so, so whatever I said. No, I meant to say relevant, of course. <laughs> Sorry. What I wanted to say is that, you know, okay, let me, so that we don't get lost here, present you just another, no, at least I should not get lost more than one or two letters. No, let, let's keep it within a certain limit. Why yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, sorry, one line is this idea of uh, extra intensity. I think he should develop it this, that, that an intensity which is as intensity constitutive for a certain transcendental world can get too intense. Uh, display with intensities and so on. Another problem I have with him, but he is aware of it, is... The way being, event, or world relate, in what sense? Not just what I was telling you. The, problem I, the problems I see are the following ones. First, Badiou's line, original, in being and event, was, as I already told you here, was that an event is an event only for those engaged in it. Event is not a neutral event. Okay, I found this sympathetic, but I think it's not as simple as that, because... You remember, and he emphasized this very nicely in his talk, how in his new book, Logics of the World, he develops three or four, I forgot, types of how you can relate subjectively to an event. You can be a direct partisan of the event. That's the authentic blah, blah. Then you can be, uh, this would have been for him this kind of a liberal attitude. You, no, first it would have been this, let's talk that vaguely, uh, revisionist attitude. You formally stick to the event, but you betrayed by reinscribing it into the old world. Like a social democrat, you say, yeah, yeah, communism important, but let's be realistic, let's do what we can, blah, blah. Then you can deny the event. This would have been the classical liberal line. October Revolution wasn't really a great event, it was just some coup d'etat by Bolsheviks, blah, blah, or the whole against, how is that guy called, uh, Francois, not Fédier, uh, 
the, the, the French Furet, Francois Furet. No, French Revolution was just a freakish, sorry, event, uh, the misdirection of French history doesn't... Uh, okay, in this sense, you deny event, you treat event as a non-event. And then you have, of course, this fascist, passionate counterattack, destroy the event, whatever. Uh, what I don't get is how then can... In, in this case, then, it's not enough to say that you are either in or out. An event can have effects on the entire field. I'm much more close to this, and he's moving in this direction, but you, to this more Hegelian view that when an event, a true event happens, and I agree here with you, be careful here, event is only event within a certain world. Then everything in this, within this world is in a way affected. If you ignore the event, you are already a fake. It's already mediated by the event. It's like, you remember the example that I gave you days ago of dialectical mediation, how after Schoenberg, atonal music, this was, this is for Badiou, the event. If you continue the Rachmaninoff ship, Tchaikovsky, it's not the same as before. You are already a fake, a kick. You are consciously, not consciously, precisely not consciously, ignoring, denying it, and so on and so on. So what, what interests me is uh, uh, what mechanism are we dealing with here? How does, how does, how can an event affect the entire field, also those who ignore it and so, you know, some, some more elaborate, you have the answer? I have a following question. Uh, I mean, the, I was interested in the way Sam Gillespie is trying to answer that question by, by, by connecting it with the with Lacan's ethics of psychoanalysis, this idea of like um, like the sort of like maximum maximum intensity being anxiety, and so not giving up on your desire is just not trying to get rid of the anxiety, not trying to like if it, it's going to affect you that much to stick with it, not repress it, to sort of allow your reality. Yeah, but again, that would have been precisely being faithful to the event. Yeah. Or uh, what what interests me is how anxiety. I think, and this would work very nicely, yes. I think that precisely an event, I'll put it in this way. Uh, I had a debate with Alain, and here we agree that, now I will give you just the very simplistic coordinates, that uh, for Lacan, following Freud, the only authentic emotion or affect, they are different. I know, I know Damasio, but I simplify it now. Uh, is uh, anxiety, you know, that's the classical Freudian point already. All other emotions can cheat, potentially cheat, only anxiety doesn't cheat. I think one should add enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is al always the obverse of anxiety. It's very close to anxiety. You know how already Kant describes enthusiasm as this limited experience where your senses are overwhelmed and so on and so on. So, uh, you know Kant's theory of enthusiasm in his uh, sublime, enthusiasm is linked to the sublime. Can yeah? this be read as, as some appropriation of Heidegger's anxiety? And, 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 and Sorry, of some? Uh, of, of Heidegger's anxiety? And ah, here, enthusiasm and affirmation seem just a sort of... Ah, here we enter the crucial question. Again, I don't have time to go into it now, but the crucial thing is to, uh, that to put it very simply, I simplify it again. 
The great break between Lacan and Freud, sorry, Lacan and Heidegger, is that for Lacan, uh, uh, Heidegger's basic point is that anxiety doesn't have an object. Anxiety, you confront the void itself, but that fear has an object, an ontic object. Anxiety is precisely when you are no longer afraid of something. For Lacan, precisely, anxiety does have an object. For interpreting Freud. And this object is, of course, haha, object Smollett and so on and so on, all that stuff, no? So here we can go into it, but another thing is important here. Uh, that, uh, uh, again, for Lacan, it's anxiety. Uh, uh, with Badiou, it gets, uh, Badiou's fidelity to the event would have been somehow on the side of enthusiasm. And where I tend to agree with you is that I claim that even when you are, that, how should I put it, enthusiasm can only arise against the background of anxiety. That the first shock of the event is anxiety, always. Like, okay, let's play the Christian event. I'm not crazy, it didn't happen, but Christ has arisen from the dead. I mean, fuck it, the first reaction is anxiety, shit, what is going on, and so on, no? Then you can, but you know what I mean, that maybe anxiety is always being the obverse of enthusiasm, is the way uh, the new, the event affects everyone. If you are a liberal who ignores it, means you may pretend, oh, oh, it's nothing, just a shitty thing, but they were scared to shit, how they put it, no? There was anxiety. So that the first reaction is anxiety. It's a little bit the same thing I want to do here as with Althusser. Yes, immediately. That uh, a guy who is otherwise, I don't have good relations with him, I forgot his name. Uh, 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 Australian-Canadian, I think. My God, I forgot. He wrote a good book on fetishism. He's linked with the conduct. Doesn't matter. Okay. He proposed this thesis which I developed in one of my lesser known books, so I can repeat the joke here. You know, Althusserian notion of ideological interpolation. How the agency, nation, whatever, addresses you. Be whatever, and then you become subject by identifying with it. Yes, I recognize myself in the call. I am. I recognize myself as communist, fascist, democrat, whatever. This kind of uh, the big other addresses as a fundamental ideological mechanism. But this guy introduced in a wonderful way a complication. He claimed that the way it works, and he didn't mean it just as an empirical compli complication which has no conceptual value, but at a very abstract level, when you are addressed, for example, Althusser's own example is, hey you, when the police interpolates you, hey you. And even if you are not guilty, the moment you turn around, you identify and in this way constitute yourself as. Uh, the point of this guy was that, let's look closely how it really works when you answer the call, hey you. The first reaction is not identification, but it's anxiety. Why me? What did I do it? Is it really me? And so on. And then, to avoid this anxiety, you identify. That, you know, the first address of the other is, say you means, who are you? What do you want? You know, you are, that's a elementary level of anxiety. 
after, again, and then only then comes the, and along these lines, again, of claiming that, uh, how should I put it, the first, again, to recapitulate it, the first reaction to the event is uh, anxiety, and then the authentically taking over the event means transforming anxiety into enthusiasm. And we all know that enthusiasm is always close to horror. I mean, take, do take Kant's own examples of enthusiasm, sorry, sublime, experience of the sublime, you know, the horror of, I don't know, nature and so on. You know, it's uh, along these lines, uh, but okay, where then do I see uh, a problem with, uh, with uh, uh, okay, this is one minimal problem. No, the, uh, I have an elementary problem with Badiou. We talked a lot and uh, I don't know where we are. Um, you know how Badiou talks usually about now I will say something horrible. Sometimes I detect in him something that I'm almost sometimes tempted to call Gnostic dualism. By this I mean the following. He has this sometimes rather crude division of what he dismissively calls the human animal. We in our daily lives, when we just follow pleasures, what he dismissively calls servicing the good and so on. No? And for him, our post-political world, consumerist society, is this at its lowest. Then, this is our universal human condition, to be human animals, intelligent animals, tool-making, whatever, but it's, there is no event, no truth. And then, from time to time, these human animals are individuals, are shocked, touched by grace, as he puts it ironically in his atheist theology, of the event. You are torn out of the... Okay, what's wrong here? Usually, but you is criticized, I think, from exactly the wrong side. The standard reproach is this naive materialist one. But isn't but you here implying some kind of a, a religious dualism? That we have the vulgar materiality of our uh, animal, what he calls, in a wonderful term, democratic materialism, what matters is pleasure, language, and so on. And then, sometimes, as if by grace, we are touched by another dimension of the event. Uh. So then the idea is, nonetheless, should we really insist to the end on this duality? Shouldn't we rather introduce some kind of mediation, where you show how the event arises of certain contradictions, tensions in the domain of being, which Badiou resists, no? I agree with him here. But you know what would be my line here? Maybe we are here coming back to Heidegger anxiety and so on. That uh, uh, if there is, this is why, did you notice another, as it were, symptom in Badiou? His confusion with death drive. Sometimes, he uses the term death drive almost in this sense, decadence and so on, human animal. Uh, his, but you, his almost violent denial, he, uh, of his reaction of what Heidegger calls Seinsumtode, being towards death, this is part of his aversion to the motive of infinity, sorry, of finitude, his violent reduction of 
Heideggerian being towards death to just animal fear of dying and so on. He has sometimes this simple even opposition, either that all this Heideggerian topic of death as the ultimate limit defines us as human animals. When you are called by an event, you enter immortality, infinity, and so on and so on. First, I don't quite think this works as a reading of Heidegger, but it doesn't matter. What I want to say is the following thing. My attack, my difference with a view, my critique of a view would have been exactly the opposite one. If there is a lesson from psychoanalysis, then it is that the problem is not we are all human animals and if we want to remain materialists, we should somehow deduce event from being. No? Otherwise we are idealists, dualists. No, my thesis is that there is no human animal. What do you mean by this? Not that everything is event, but that there is a third domain anxiety, which is constitutive of being human. And that uh, what he calls, okay, I'll put it in this way. You know the Freudian theory of death drive. Death drive is this original, uh, uh, how should I call it? It's very simple what I will say. Not that, of course, there is a human animal, in the sense that at some level we function following the uh, pleasure principle and so on and so on. But that's not what defines us as human beings. What defines us is, as Freud put it, beyond the pleasure principle. Some crazy dislocation, something goes wrong, which opens up the gap of anxiety. And here, precisely following Heidegger, I would say every world, in the sense of this narrow domain where, where we can thrive as stupid human animals, is already a reaction, a defense against anxiety. So you have animal animals, to pass from animal animals to human animals, you have to have that gap, which is the same gap that you remember when I was talking about how for Hegel and Kant you have that neither culture nor nature. That would have been drive, anxiety and so on. This is what, again, Freudians tried to conceptualize as death drive, which I think in German idealism appears as the abyss of freedom, radical negativity, and so on and so on. So, my point is that, to cut a long story short, you need a third level. That, well, as, uh, there is no human animal, if there is a lesson of psychoanalysis, is that we humans are, that is, if there is a lesson of psychoanalysis, is that American constitution is wrong. That is to say that it's not in our nature the pursuit of happiness. On the contrary, there is a wonderfully funny book by that uh, theorist, I think follower of Bateson, Paul Watzlawick. I think the title of the book is The Pursuit of Unhappiness. And he goes into how the whole human strategy can only be understood of when there is a horrible chance of things going well, how you try to sabotage them and so on. No? So uh, you got my point. I claim that what defines humanity is some kind of traumatic gap. Freudian name is death drive. And then, what we call, what Badiou calls human animal is already an attempt to impose some order on it, a kind of a secondary stabilization, as they put it. And this is how, I think, you can also somehow mediate being an event, being in the sense of simple human animal, that an event is possible 
in a materialist way, precisely because being is never fully being. Because being, in the sense of ordinary human-animal existence, already, you know, be, here I'm a Heideggerian, if you want, behind every be, being, being in the sense of ordinary living in a world, human-animal, happily, pleasure principle, anxiety already lurks. That excess of anxiety can be overturned into an event into the enthusiasm of the event. That would be, now I, I put it in extremely simplified terms, no? But again, this is always my problem with Badiou. Not, not this metaphysical one, is there an event up there, no? But is it what he thinks is here? How should I put it, no? Because can I quote you something which you should like? Where I see, I see this, uh, how should I call it, uh, Oh, I hope I will find the fragment. I must have it here. My God, uh, this uh, uh, wonderful moment of weak, weakness where Badiou... Just a second, please give me a second. Is it here or there? Where... Uh, um, no. Uh, oh, my God. Aha, uh, uh -huh, no. Don't have it here. No, the point is... Okay, please, I will try... Be patient. I will try somehow to. Uh, I will try somehow to reproduce it uh, uh, the best that I. Yeah, I'll let the stupid break. break. Sorry. No stupid shitty break. A stupid shitty break, so that I can get together my stupid shitty thoughts. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a good idea. Okay. Let's do a break. Okay. Okay. You know, uh, you can raise some questions about me in your opinions, but this kind of. Uh, constructive questions, like it intrigues us how this guy can be so deep and at the same time so funny or something. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a sheer profundity. Yeah, nice. yeah, nice and, humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I find this so disgusting. That's why I hate being a professor. You know, this idea that I don't like to judge others, but I don't like others to judge me, you know. And also, can you really... I mean, I know that most of the students are honest, and they even don't like you to be permissive. I know that. Don't underestimate students. Like, if you are a tough professor, but if the students sense that you are tough on behalf of the course, of the book, tough with them because you read blah, 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 students are not idiots. They much more prefer this than some kind of a cheap permissivity, you know, I don't care, and so on, and so on, no? But on the other hand, don't you think that in every generation there are two, three of them who want to take some kind of revenge, and so on, no? Yeah, yeah. for example, my first experience was that once they tried to do me, I gave some religious example uh, for what would be a true Christianity at the talk. And I, I said that, uh, uh, you know how in one type of quoting literature in the United States, but this is called not Chicago Manual, the other one, you have in the main text just the year and the page, like Hegel 2001, page 85, no? And yeah. then you have bibliography at the end. APA. Yes. And I said, wouldn't it be nice to treat Christ in this way? Like, let's say, B, C, D. You have like Benjamin, Illuminations, New York 72, at the end in bibliography, no? And then you have Christ, Jesus, Speeches, Jerusalem 33, edited by Mark, and then the Ridagramatology, and then, you know, to do this obscenity, to have it in the text like 
when you talk about evil and sin. As to this, compare also some interesting remarks in Christ 33, especially chapter 5 and so on. And then a guy denounced me for uh, making fun of religion, whatever, whatever, and I did something totally crazy which worked. I attacked the guy as anti-Christian. I said that he doesn't get it, that, and I'm sincerely convinced that this is the whole point of Jesus Christ. He was crucified as, a, you know, he, he was fully human, one of us. It's strictly a pagan, a pagan uh, falsification which started in that Orthodox Church, uh, Constantinople, to, 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 to paint Christ as a divinity. I mean, if you read the Bible, you know what kind of a divinity was Christ, a kind of a mocking clownish divinity who entered the city uh, riding, riding uh, a, a monkey or whatever. No, sorry, donkey, whatever. No, no, no so, uh, uh, no, no, what, and even, do you know that another problem I have, do you agree with me? I always get into a problem with a certain joke that I use in my, uh, uh, what is it called, uh, Plague of Fantasies, which I consider a one, and also this happened in Stanford. I was attacked. Even the lecture was interrupted, but I exploded in fury back, and it worked. It, you must know the joke. It's a standard Yugoslav. We are the nastiest joke. Uh, about, uh, maybe you know it, I'm sorry if I repeated myself. Uh, a guy sits at the bar and drinks whiskey. And then on the bar, the, uh, a monkey comes by and washes his testicle in the whiskey glass and leaves. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the guy, surprised, what's going on? The monkey comes again, washes his testicles, goes off, and then the guy asks, the guy asks the barman, do you know why is the monkey washing his balls in my whiskey? He said, I don't know, ask the gypsy, the gypsy band which is playing, no? And he calls the gypsy band leader, hi, do you know why? And the gypsy band says, of course I do, and starts to sing a song. Oh, why is a monkey washing? Like, no, the, the catch is that the gypsy reads this as the title of a song, like, do you know the song <laughs> and the title? Why? And I was uh, attacked for speciesism making fun of animals, I told them, are you crazy? I mean, the, the, the stupid victim is the white male. I cannot imagine a more politically correct joke. The monkey is the, the, the big winner here, no? <laughs> he washes his balls, you can't do anything. No? The gypsy guy trying the only, can you imagine, the, which is why I hate this, uh, that's what I don't like in Santa Cruz, one of the capitals of political correctness. They have these jokes, I was told where they try to make abstract jokes to be sure that you don't offend anyone. You know, like, what happens when a triangle meets a circle? Fuck it, what do I care what happens? I mean, something must be clear so on. No, 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 I hate this so much. But here, I'm quite serious now. My obsession is there is, admit it, a lot of, a lot of, uh, my great story of hypocrisy of political correctness, charity, or I mentioned this in one of my books. It happened in 91-92 when the war was going on in ex-Yugoslavia and I participated, this was Berkeley, a Hitchcock conference. And I gave a paper on Hitchcock. And then some idiot attacked me. How, why your country is in flames? How can you talk about such frivolous thing as Hitchcock? And then of course I exploded, like... I cannot, you can. That's racism. I should behave. I only allowed your precious academic space if I play this. 
victim from, Gal from Balkan. Ooh, horrible nationalists we suffer. Well, you can. I said, why don't we exchange? You write a report on Balkan war, leave Hitchcock to me. <laughs> no, 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 it's quite breathtaking how, how... Okay, but let's return to where we were. We were at Badiou, this idea of anxiety and so on. The interesting thing is, and then we end with Badiou, I tend to agree with Badiou's follower, and he, here Badiou is really lucky, although I don't always agree with them. But you has two main, how should I put it, Anglo-Saxon deputies in this Jacobinic dictatorship sense. You nominate a deputy to run your affairs in this, in this, uh, in this uh, canton, in that part of the world. Uh, in United States, Bruno Bostels, in UK, Peter Holbert. And Bostels now translated you by, this is, I think, the best book still by you, Theory of Subject. And... Uh, but you, uh, no, sorry, Bostel's notion, and I tend to agree with it, is that <coughs> the true radical breakthrough is there, and that both big books, which come later, being an event, Logics of the World, are really almost attempts to contain, to norm, to, how do you put it, this, this measurement problems in quantum physics, to renormalize the tariff. I know that book is a little bit inconsistent and so on, but it has the freshness of this radical breakthrough. So what I want to say is that Dirk Badiou does something wonderful. He proposes, and only now he's slowly returning to it, there he already has this link between anxiety and event. His idea, and it's done wonderfully, Bruno Postel, and already Badiou links this to the opposition between uh, Aeschylus, I hope you pronounce this shitty name correctly, Aeschylus and Sophocles. Usually psychoanalysts like Sophocles, you know, the great one, Antigone, we all love the Oedipus myth. But for, uh, but you introduces four notions. Uh, terror, anxiety, terror, anxiety, courage, justice. And for him, for Badiou, Sophocles is the poet writer of terror, anxiety. Antigone, terror, anxiety, death, this kind of a tragic pessimism. While Aeschylus is the one of courage, justice. You also do have anxiety, like in, in Oresteia, you know, who is called the young creep who killed his father. Uh, which? Uh, oh my God, I always forget. No, no, who killed him? The son, the name. Sorry? Orestes, my God, Oresteia, I'm slightly stupid. Yes, Orestes. You know, you have terror, anxiety, but then it's overcome with courage, and then at the end, a new justice. Uh, I here suggested a correction to Badiou, which this time I can say at least he claims to me, I don't know what he will tell to you behind my back, he accepted that justice sticks out here. I don't think it belongs here, because all other three notions, terror, anxiety, courage, name, let's call them naively, subjective attitudes, while justice is something different. So I suggested replacing justice with enthusiasm. That in the same, terror is linked to anxiety in a homologous way, courage is linked to 
enthusiasm. It's true courage that you, when you are terrified and thrown into anxiety, through courage you overcome and you convert, as it were, anxiety into enthusiasm. So uh, why am I mentioning this? Because here, nonetheless, so that I don't say only bad things about, but you, here I agree with him against, as I already hinted at, against Lacanians. Lacanians, for Lacanians, this is not psychologically correct and so on and so on, but the stakes are extremely high here, politically, because what unfortunately predominates among the Lacanians is this kind of a psychoanalytic, how they call it naively, sometimes almost cynical pessimism. The idea is that the ultimate confrontation with the real, the ultimate truth is the uh, traversing the fantasy, you know, this kind of a tragic, as if looking sun into the eye, and then it's a single, first it's a, an experience which cannot be protracted. The idea of Lacan is that, you know, it's like Antigone. You enter some pro prohibited domain, you cannot stay there. You must return to ordinary reality full of illusions. And B, Lacan unfortunately insists on this one, uh, this ultimate, let's call it naively authentic subjective experience of traversing the fantasy uh, is singular, individual, in the sense that for Lacanians, although it looks sometimes more ambiguous, but basically, ultimately, nonetheless, uh, collectivity as such is collective action is the domain of illusions. Every collectivity is sustained by imaginary, symbolic identification and the realism mask, all the shit, and so on and so on. Uh, I am I, here absolutely on Badiou's side. I think that you can, losing nothing of the authenticity of anxiety, you can revert, as it were, transform anxiety into enthusiasm and at the same time collectivizing it as it were, no? collectivizing it, as a, so that there is, I don't buy this game, which then, then you end up where Jacqueline Miller ended now, you know, writing regularly political comments for, for Le Poing and Le Figaro, the two big right of center, and making this kind of, it's a kind of a, uh, how should I call it, uh, but you was right when, in his love for Jacobin radicals. He said that effectively, the ultimate choice is virtue or corruption. And I was effectively shocked. You know how it became, I think this was the, the beginning of the decline of Miller, where already, when did Berlusconi first explode in Italy? Almost 10 years ago, no? 1994. Yeah, 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 even more, yeah. Uh, uh, Miller used that in order to praise corruption. Miller openly said that a little bit of corruption, we have realistically to accept it, that if you fight corruption, you end up in some kind of totalitarian terror and so on, or madness, and he was not poor Berlusconi, but he's, you know how Berlusconi came to power. It was that big action of the manipulator or whatever, where the whole establishment of Christian democracy and so on disintegrated, and then Berlusconi entered. So this was uh, Miller's message, as it were. We should be realist, a little bit of corruption, extra. And he was always 
fascinated by this. It's incredible to what extent, for example, he visited Slovenia already under communism. When I was young, we invited him in 79-80. And when we told him, you see, we shouldn't go here, this is just for high party functionaries, but we can squeeze you in. Oh, he was no, always kind of a, you know, or he's so fascinated by this. And he thinks he's saying something very deep. This, he considers this a wisdom that, you know, a certain amount of corruption, you have to accept it to make things running and so on and so on. I find this terrifying. This is what I'm talking about, this kind of a attitude of cynical wisdom. In the sense of, after you've gone through fantasy, you see the ultimate void, then you return to daily life, but you are aware this, we are all just playing games, it's just a game. Don't, this kind of a cynical wisdom. I'm totally opposed to this attitude. I don't buy this. I don't buy this. Again, I think it's politically catastrophic. I even doubt. Sorry, but you, are you there scratching yourself or? Uh, you did raise hand. Sorry, please. Yeah. Question. Um, what you said, that, but you have been going, uh, he had somewhat like an attempt to normalize, really normalize on a historian make it fit in a bit of a framework. After being an event, there were some comments in a huge debate where I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was Peter Hallowat's comments that pushed but you to examine even more closely, take the, the, uh, the attention from the event itself yeah. to the event outside and to how this works. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mean towards fidelity and so on, yeah. So uh, it was, it was Hallowat's, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, okay, but, please. Um, yeah. What I realize now in this, uh, in this, the last book, in the logical world, where there is explicit mentioning of intensity and so on, and I tried to, to put this question forward in the public lecture, but he shoved it off, you know, like nothing. I know, he's in his style. I, told, I was told he wants only Britain questions, now and so on. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> anyway, this issue of intensity yeah. and privileging difference so much brings him, brings him so very close to the lose. For me. That's I, a very good question, which is why, can I tell you, I already mentioned this. Because no, I can just tell you something which confirms this. Do you know that, okay, he will maybe deny it, this is private, was private conversation. After reading Peter Holworth's critique of Deleuze, Out of This World, I met at one of these city conferences there, uh, Peter, and told him, but probably you know that the way you formulate your critique of Deleuze, that the true target appears to be Badiou himself. That basically the point is that the event can be out of this world and so on. And he said, yeah, 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 I know, and so on, and so on, no? So uh, my answer to this... Oh, sorry, pl please finish. Did you? Uh, oh, no, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, my, you know, okay, let me tell you where do I agree, where I don't agree. Uh, it is true, Peter is right, that although Badiou emphasizes that what matters are more and more, I agree, the consequences, the fidelity, or to put it in his Christian terms, the work of love, underlying work. Badiou, I totally agree with him, it's precisely against this cynical idea of you encounter event, uh, and then you return to corruption. No, traces are all that counts. But I cannot, maybe I'm wrong, I cannot bring this fully together <coughs> with 
his idea of a, let's say, eventual revolutionary series, which then exhausts itself, and then this was the ironic struggle we had when I mentioned, you know, that's why he wanted to kill me, symbolically, you know, when, when, when I wrote that about Deng Xiaoping capitalism as the consequence of cultural revolution. He sees a gap here. He totally rejects this idea that when things, the way things go on, it's somehow the truth of. I agree with him here, but nonetheless, for me, for example, you know, ask him how does he date the events. For him, the event of October Revolution, you know, when does it end? In 1917. For him, the moment they took power, they started to play the state party game, it's over, and so on and so on. And he refuses to draw, he simply thinks the event was exhausted. And then you cannot play any game of is the event itself responsible for the sheet that followed and so on and so on. Here I would be more on the Holbert side. I would have said, as I always repeat it, for me the single most interesting, tragic but productive moment of Soviet Union was the early 20s. After the civil war was over, they confronted this problem of, how should I put it, reconstructing the everyday life. They had beautiful, very naive problems, like people marry, they die, they have holidays. How can we reconstruct all these, how should I put it, rituals which are holding daily life together without simply relying on the old rituals? They really tried to reconstruct from sexual manners to I don't know what. This was for me the crucial test. How does an event inscribe itself, its traces into the order of being? And so there they failed. There they failed. So uh, uh, in, in this sense, I am up to a point on, on Peter Holbert's side. That, uh, but here, now we are coming to the big problem that I was looking for a quote. Okay, fuck the quote. I will reproduce it more or less. At some point, I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's in the logic of the world. Uh, but you naively confront this question, the big question, which is ultimately, ontologically, how do being and event relate to each other? Incidentally, I have another, maybe I already told it to you, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, uh, misunderstanding with Badiou, I totally accept his triple ontology from, uh, uh, from, uh, from logics, of the, uh, logics of the world, but with two provisors. First, uh, and she violently disagrees with me here, I think there is no world outside language. I think that what he describes as world, no wonder that he all the time had to use the very terms refer to signifying mechanisms, like, you know, the point, le point, which is simply his name for what Lacan calls master signifier, you know, the one mark which decides yes or no or whatever, or the entire symptomal structure, you know, when he talks about this non-existent of a world as its symptomal point and so on, and the reversal of 
as he puts it, the reversal of non-existent into the most intense existence. I think this only works in a symbolic system. I think you don't have symptoms, you don't have points in nature. Now, I agree with him in his trust against the philosophy of language. I agree that truth is not historically language specific. It's not, you know, this symbolic historicism whose ultimate expression maybe is Heidegger, that the ultimate abyss that we can confront is that of Arrhenius in the sense of the, how should I put it, subjectless, anonymous game of different worlds being destined to us. We experience being like this, the stupid ancient Greeks experience it like that or whatever. No? Uh, uh, ah, isn't there a Greek guy here? Yeah. You were, yeah. Ah, you know where I, would you agree with me? This was really offensive, but my Greek friends embraced me when I was in Athens. I did everything wrong there. First, they took me to a restaurant, I hate it because it was uh, expensive, I prefer cheap popular restaurants, down from Acropolis, and we talked about politics, and they told me how, oh, you know, uh, we are in deep crisis in Greece, and then I did some nasty remark, I pointed Acropolis and said, look, that beautiful building, even that is falling apart, you really must be in crisis, if you cannot, and so on. But then I did something really nasty. You know this big debate, Melina Mercury tried, that you try to get back from, especially England and Britain, all those Caryatids parts of Parthenon. I said, but wait a minute, if you look at the history of modern Greece, you must know that the first capital in 1840 or when, even wasn't Athens, that you at that point didn't perceive clearly this, uh, this, this idea that you are the descendants of the big ancient Greece. This was the colonialist view 